Hello and welcome to the Have We Got Planning News For You podcast series. My name is Charlie Banner and I'm a member of the panel of the show, which is made up of five senior barristers who specialise in planning law, who came together at the start of lockdown last year to inform, entertain and most importantly help raise money for charity. We've never charged the show, but we've always encouraged viewers to make a donation, either to the NHS Combined Charities page or other charities such as Shelter or Local Charity of your choice. You'll find details on our website. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome back to Have We Got Planning News For You after our two-week break. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I hope um, your February has been good so far. Welcome to our YouTube viewers. Please don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel to get all our updates at the earliest opportunity. And can I, as always, start with my usual reminder to you to consider making a charity donation in place of a registration fee, either to our preferred charities, the NHS Combined, Justin Page and Shelter, or to a charity of your choice. Now, uh, our special guest this week is um, quite extraordinary, uh, really, um, none other than the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, who, along with the Archbishop of York, recently commissioned a report into the housing crisis. Um, that report called Coming Home, for reasons which uh, you will hear from Archbishop Justin, uh, was published this week, and we're extremely uh, fortunate that the Archbishop has agreed to discuss it uh, with us. Um, now, given um, his very busy schedule, we had to meet with him yesterday and, and pre-record the interview. So we will be playing that uh, exclusively as a world premiere um, in the second half of this show, which means we're going to do things ever so slightly differently. Um, I'm slightly relieved that I don't get to have to ask the Archbishop of Canterbury what he's drinking uh, this evening. <laughs> it must be said. Chicken, <laughs> chicken. <laughs> Bit of a cop out that one, um, and um, and so um, he's not on screen now. We're going to do nudge and champion of the week before um, the interview with him, uh, and then close with that interview. Sasha, in perfect time, has come from uh, joined us from his inquiry. Paul is still, I think, his witness is being cross examined at the moment, but he promises he will be with us very shortly. Um, so, without further ado, let's introduce um, uh, that much of the panel that we have before us. Starting as ever with Mary uh, in in the gallery. Good. Evening, everybody. Welcome back. It's lovely to be here. And this is such a special show. So, yes, Mary Cook, Town Legal, in the gallery, drinking water, hoping somebody's going to turn it into wine later. <laughs> and uh, Chris, how are you, mate? Hello, Charlie. I'm here in Hogwarts again and uh, getting a little bit sick of working at home all the time. But um, that is how it is. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I am here and I'm not drinking anything this week because it's Lent and I've given up alcohol and I can't tell you how difficult that is. That is really challenging, uh, but we are meant to give up things that are challenging. And um, I'm here with Presumption. Presumption, uh, as you can see, is in his bishop's mitre. He's got his dog collar on. And what he's got to the side of him, I don't know if you can see that, is the um, badge that went on my grandfather's robes. My grandfather was the vicar of Clent for 30 years and a rural dean and an honorary canon. So that is from the Diocese of Worcester, just to remain topical. <laughs> I'm just enjoying his early introduction to yoga. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am, I'm afraid you've only got me for five minutes because my inquiry is going back at quarter past five. So I just thought I'd come and say hello and say we've got the best show ever. And I'm in London. And I cannot wait to have the rest of the programme. I'll be back at about 5.30 with a fair win. So I just wanted to say hello and, and test Chris's ability to improvise by he can do my case summary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks, Sasha. We'll see you. Good luck in the rest of it. Oh, Charlie Banner here, Keith James. I haven't given up alcohol for Lent. I've got a... Um, uh, a Bavarian monk's beer. It's the closest I could get to a sort of uh, religious theme. And in fact, I've even got some chocolates too, so the opposite. Then. Instead, for Lent, I've given up museums and zoos and uh, non-essential shopping and pubs and bars and restaurants and holidays um, and fun. Um, but hopefully that will all come back soon. Um, anyway, without further ado, let's get to the serious stuff. And we've got five uh, updates to give you um, 
this week rather than the usual four because we've been away for two weeks. And Mary, you're going to kick us off with the latest missive from the Supreme Court about Village Greens. Yes, that's right. So this is, uh, as you say, a decision of the uh, Supreme Court. And this litigation is about a landowner trying to overcome the registration of land as a TVG, i.e. Town Village Green. And the Supreme Court dismissed uh, TW Logistics Limited's appeal against the uh, decision of the Court of Appeal in 2018, who in turn had dismissed an appeal from the decision of a judge sitting in the Chancery Division, uh, who had dismissed a claim seeking the rectification of uh, the Commons Land Register. Uh, in order to basically overturn, if you like, the decision to register the land as a TVG in the first place. So you can see that the uh, landowner was, had to really try hard and lost at, pre- at every stage. So the appellant, and, and Rob has a, has a plan, maybe when I'm just describing this, Rob could put up the plan. Um, the appellant owned the private uh, working port at Misley. This is the land, the plan shows the land that was the subject of the uh, registration as a TVG. And that land included an area of some 200 square meters, uh, as you can see, close to the water's edge uh, and across which port vehicles, including heavy goods vehicles, uh, were driven. And in 2013, thank you very much, Rob, a local resident applied to East Sussex County Council as the registration authority to have the land registered. uh, And that was in itself triggered by the erection of a fence Uh, which itself was triggered by concerns from the health and safety executive about people falling into the water. You've got to feel a little sorry here for uh, the appellant uh, who owned the the port. But in any event, following an inquiry, the inspector was satisfied that the evidence demonstrated 20 years user as of right for recreational purposes. Those are the three key ingredients. And so he recommended that the land be registered. The appellant sought to overcome that, firstly, relying on a case called New Haven, which was a case about a beach. Uh, And and that was a case in which it was decided that the beach couldn't be registered as a TVG because it was part of a port operated by a landowner pursuant to statutory obligations which were incompatible with registration as a TVG. The second point was that the landowner's rights were said to be incompatible with such registration. That is the right to, for example, take an HGV vehicle over this land. And then the third point was that exercising their uh, land use rights would expose them to potential criminal liability under these rather uh, ancient Victorian statutes. So at first instance, the judge found that uh, because this was a private port, they couldn't rely on New Haven. Secondly, the judge found that there was nothing incompatible between the recreational rights that could be exercised by the public and the rights of the port to take traffic across this land. So that left the third point. And again, the court found that there was nothing inconsistent between the exercise of the rights uh, and it wasn't exposing the landowner to criminal proceedings. So in the Court of Appeal, the first ground fell away. Uh, and in the Court of Appeal, the, uh, the, the, they, they reminded um, the appellant of the decision in Lewis v. Redcar, which was that uh, explained that the rights of a landowner um, to continue pre-existing activities uh, continued, notwithstanding TVG registration, and the principle of give and take was established so that um, there was nothing inconsistent Uh, between registration and a landowner's rights and that that they could continue. So that was the end of ground two. So by the time it got to the Supreme Court, there was only one point, and that was the central point about whether the registration of the land as the the TVG would have the consequence of continuing uh, with the landowner's pre-existing commercial activities would effectively expose the landowner to this criminalization. And basically, counsel for the appellant said that his client had been committing criminal offenses ever since the land was registered as a TVG. Well, you can imagine that didn't go down very well in the Supreme Court. <laughs> and neither was that accepted by Essex County Council as the registration authority. 
And it wasn't accepted by the Supreme Court. And that was really the end of it. But the, the moral of all of this is that um, it's clear that the modern concept of a town and village green is much wider than the traditional green village that we might green that we might might think of and that it now includes a private uh, port uh, and previous cases have included areas of rocks used for the mooring of boats partly submerged scrubland and disused quarries so don't expect tvgs just to look green secondly if you're buying some land and it is registered you need to make sure that you understand the scope of the recreational rights so that you know whether those recreational rights interfere with what it is you want to do as a landowner. So that's th those are the two morals that I draw from that. Thank you very much. Back to you, Charlie. Thanks, Mary. Um, well, I'm going to take the next case, which um, is um, <clears throat> known as, as Pierce and the Secretary of State for Business, Enterprise and Industrial Strategy, but it is known almost ubiquitously as the North Vanguard case. And this is a decision of Mr. Justice Holgate um, quashing the DCO uh, um, under the Planning Act 2008 um, in relation to a failure to assess cumulative effects lawfully. Um, it, it, um, the North Vanguard scheme is one of the largest offshore wind projects in the world, uh, involving 158 wind turbines. And the Vanguard project is closely related to a second wind farm scheme known as Norfolk Boreas, which was the subject of a separate DC application submitted about a year later. The Vanguard examination uh, of the DCO ran from December 2018 to June 2019. The dates are important, <coughs> excuse me, with the decision on the 1st of July 2020. The Boreas examination was about um, nine to ten months later, um, and uh, a decision hasn't yet been issued, uh, anticipated in April 2021. The two projects share the same uh, overall parent company promoter, Vattenfall, and they were due to share a, a grid connection, as well as much of the onshore and offshore cable corridors. And that cable route would run onshore to a new substation, which was to be located near the village of Necton, which is where a lot of the opposition to the scheme was. Development at Necton uh, was, uh, so Mr Justice Hoggate described it, on any view substantial. And importantly, it would be broadly double in size if Boreas was consented too, so as to deal with the additional electricity throughput. Now, unsurprisingly, it was common ground at the DCO stage um, uh, between the parties uh, that the cumulative impacts of Vanguard and Boreas in combination needed to be assessed in the Vanguard environmental statement. And indeed, um, they were assessed in the environmental statement. But the PIMS examining authority report, with which the Secretary of State for Bayes agreed, concluded that um, they didn't need to consider and wouldn't consider cumulative landscape and visual impact uh, uh, assessment due to, and I'm quoting uh, the examining authority's report, due to the limited amount of details available in relation to the Boreas scheme, which if you remember was coming later. Uh, and they went on to say it would be most appropriate for cumulative impacts to be considered in any future examination in relation to North Boreas. So effectively, the in combination landscape and visual effects, particularly in relation to the substation at Necton, were being left for consideration at the second consenting stage for Boreas. And that was the principal focus of the judicial review. Agreeing with the claimants, um, Mr Justice Holgate held that the examining authorities and thus the Secretary of State's failure to evaluate the cumulative impacts at Necton of the two schemes was in breach of the infrastructure EIA regulations and, and was also irrational in public law. Um, the reason for this is that the developer hadn't identified any difficulties in assessing cumulative effects with Boreas and the EIA regs make clear where there are difficulties in, in doing the assessment, you have to say so. And they hadn't said so. Indeed, they'd done a cumulative assessment. Um, so in that context, leaving aside the assessment of cumulative landscape and visual effects to the Boreas examination stage was too late, because by that stage, Vanguard would have been consented. And the consent for Vanguard would fix Necton as the location for the substation. So when the cumulative effects came to be considered in this, at the Boreas DCO, the, uh, the option was only how do you mitigate the Necton substation as opposed to should it be a Necton in the first place? The die was cast by grant of consent for the, um, for the Vanguard scheme. Um, and on that basis, the claim was allowed and the DCO was quashed. And I'd say in terms of lessons learned, it's firstly the case is obviously a salutary reminder of the care needed in considering cumulative effects and the dangers 
when those effects are in combination with an as yet unconsented projects, the dangers of relying on that future consenting decision as a complete answer to the consideration of community effects. You can't just kick the can down the road if you're able to assess the impacts now, and if failing to do that would somehow um, prejudice the range of considerations in the second project. So um, that's uh, a, a relatively unusual quashing for Mr Justice Holgate. Um, and over to you, Chris, and you're going to tell us about a, um, a planning appeal decision in uh, Bromsgove, where, um, which is the closest town to where I was brought up. In fact, I went to primary school in Bromsgove, wrote the fanzine for Bromsgove Rovers Football Club. Uh, my dad is buried in Bromsgove Cemetery, so a place very close to my, my own heart. And you're going to tell us about um, some extra homes that have been granted there. This is an appeal from Bromsgrove in Worcestershire, uh, same district uh, as the village of Clent, where my grandfather was the vicar for 30 years. An appeal for 500 houses allowed on a greenfield site on the edge of Bromsgrove. Um, and this is uh, a situation where the appellants, Catesby Estates, uh, who are part of Urban and Civic and Miller Homes, were appealing on an allocated site. So the site was allocated in the Bromsgrove local plan. I acted for the authority in that plan. Um, and the application was submitted in November 2016. Uh, the appeal was heard in November 2020. And the inspector was Richard Clegg, uh, who regularly features on this show. Um, if we look at the details of the application, I don't know if Rob can bring, uh, bring that up on the screen. Uh, you will see uh, that um, it was for residential um, and amongst, uh, this is the fifth bullet point, amongst the uh, matters being considered was the demolition of the Greyhound public house um, and the inquiry sat um, for a whole week. Now, um, you might ask yourself, hang on a minute, uh, an application in 2016, but an appeal in 2020. Why, why was that? And the reason is that there was a previous appeal. If we have a look at uh, paragraph 11 of the decision, we can see there was a previous appeal on this site when the site was a draft allocation and the appeal was dismissed. The inspector concluded that the scheme would have a severe residual cumulative impact on traffic congestion, movement and highway safety. Uh, the plan was at that stage at the examination stage, but there was no dispute about it being an appropriate allocation, uh, the council were fully supportive of it. The real issue was the Greyhound pub that I mentioned before. The Greyhound pub stood uh, in the way of the site. Uh, it's on two sides of a road and did not allow the junction improvements that might otherwise have been considered appropriate. And so the appeal was dismissed with a pretty clear indication that the Greyhound pub was required. There you go. There's the site, Greenfield site on the edge of Bromsgrove. I hope the, uh, the memories are flooding back for you, Charlie. Um, so um, what that proves, I think, is pretty significant, which is the white paper proposals are suggesting that in growth areas, there'll be automatic planning permission. But um, that's not going to work, is it? In situations where there are highway or junction difficulties that need to be overcome. What that will mean is the growth areas will have to investigate all this at the local plan stage, which means the local plan will then go even slower because you'll have to look at the detail that you would look at with allocated sites at an outlined stage. These, these stages have a reason. That's why they're there. Um, anyway, back to the facts of the case. Um, the appeal was allowed. The appellants were represented by the uh, ever fantastic Rupert Warren. And um, I should say they secured a full award of costs in relation to this case. The council uh, case uh, was considered by the inspector unreasonable. Look, there's Paul Tucker. Hello, Paul Tucker. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Thank, thanks, Chris. I, I must yeah. say before we get... God's I haven't call. finished, Charlie. I've got another hour. <laughs> but can I just, just quickly, just ever so quickly oh. mention, um, the, if you look at the case, if you've got um, issues about the use of the... Uh, DMRB against Manual for Streets, paragraphs uh, um, uh, 20, uh, 19 and 20, look at that issue. If you've got issues about not meeting all the standards required by the Highway Authority, look at paragraph 30. And if you've got issues um, about, um, uh, about w whether 
you need to go, you can't go over 0.85 in the RFC, the congestion reference flows, because people often say you mustn't go above 0.85. Again, the inspector deals with that. So this wasn't without its difficulties that were raised by the locals and raised by um, the council. There were difficulties, but the inspector dismisses those, doesn't consider that they should stop the appeal and indeed awards costs. So for highway consultants everywhere, it's a must read that one. Thanks, Chris. And, and Paul's just noted in the comments that it's worth noting the inspector endorsed uh, Section 106 contribution for the local NHS trust, contrary to the approach taken in the Wilbur Barton um, uh, Secretary of State decision uh, last year, more on which uh, next week. Um, Chris, I'm very sorry to say uh, there's some bad news for presumption. David has told us he's going to have to go before the Archbishop arrives because Leviticus tells us in the Old Testament that these are the birds you are to regard as unclean. Um, the horned owl, the screech owl, any the little owl, the great owl, the white owl, and the desert owl. So, sorry, presumption, but it, it sounds like um, you are literally, literally heretical, and, and yes. can't be yeah. in the, um, certainly can't yeah. wear that hat. And does he look bothered? <laughs> now, um, who's next? It's um, Paul. You're going to tell us about um, uh, one of Chris's cases, actually. Uh, I, I thought I was telling you about Harbour Road, Desborough. Oh. No. <laughs> I thought it was one of Chris's cases. No, that's the other one. <laughs> don't, don't tell me that I prepared all of this, having just <laughs> literally walked out of another inquiry with my duty uh, and I've got the wrong case. Thanks, Charlie. That's really made my day. <laughs> um, right. I'm going to tell you about Desborough, whether, I, whether I'm scheduled to or not. Uh, right, so this is an appeal allowed by Mr Inspector Hannah on the 10th of February. Um, uh, so, so far as I'm aware, the, uh, Chris had nothing to do with the case because it was just, just Cannock for the appellant and Steph Paul <laughs> uh, uh, for the uh, for the local authority. And congratulations, by the way, uh, to Steph who had a baby on Monday. Uh, so many congratulations to her, uh, to David, and to uh, baby Benjamin. Um, it's an interesting case because it, it really revolved around. Uh, the up-to-datedness of policy and local plan, but the consistency with previous appeal decisions. So the, the inspector concluded that a site which was immediately adjacent to um, a settlement for residential development, a relatively modest settlement in Kettering Borough, um, was outside the settlement boundary, but the settlement boundary was out of date, notwithstanding the existence of a five-year land supply. Um, and he concluded that policy seven of local plan which was inconsistent with MPPF uh, was out of date. Now that was inconsistent with a previous appeal that had taken place on another site um, but the inspector notes specifically that the council's officer conceded that he was out of date in cross-examination um, and um, council for the uh, local authority Stephanie Hall made the point that she had taken, instruct taken uh, uh, instructions and was instructed specifically to argue that the council's case was inconsistent with her witnesses concession in that regard. Very unusual for that to happen. And if it happens, you've got to make it clear to the decision maker that, that, that you're running a case on instructions. The inspector uh, criticises pretty, pretty clearly at paragraph 18 of the decision, uh, that approach from the council in the light of that concession, which was properly made. Um, the decisive issue, I think, looking at it was that the site, although it was in the countryside, was in fact a site identified in the preferred options of the emerging local plan. And there was a comparatively limited harm in terms of uh, landscape and its relationship to the settlement. But it's a really unusual case where the inspector rightly points out what is an evidential, evidential fundament, which is cases should be decided on the evidence, not decided on the basis of what your, counsel, what your client wants you to decide the case upon. So um, strong thumbs up to uh, Stephanie Hall for running the case properly. Uh, obviously, thumbs up to Inspector Hannah for making that point explicit. And it certainly should be on the uh, the inspector's handbook to point out to future inspectors. And, and not criticising them, it's just presumably also a vindication of the rigour of the inquiry process. Because in, in a hearing, you could just anything goes. That was exactly Giles's point when I spoke to him about it earlier on in the week. That this is a an absolute classic of where um, testing the evidence was essential to demonstrate the logic behind a previous decision and why we the inspector should make an inconsistent decision based upon it. Yeah, here, here, Sash. Um, I'm not going to even tell everybody what you're going to tell us about it because I'll just be wrong. So, <laughs> I, I, I must say you disconcerted me. I hope I've got the right bloody case. That's for sure. <laughs> so I'm not supposed to swear on this edition, am I? Um, so long as I'm not in it, that's fine. 
<laughs> it is. It's one of you. No, I'm going to talk very, very briefly because you, you know when you when you go to you're about to go out to dinner and have a five course banquet and someone gives you a bag of peanuts. That's a bit like I feel like before the Archbishop of Canterbury. Basically, I'm going to talk about High Court case and Tame for thirty seconds. And I, it was a High Court case of the 16th of Feb, where. Mrs Justice Lang looked at a challenge by, this was Tame Town Council, the local town council didn't like the decision of the inspector, who effectively concluded on a scheme, a resi scheme on a, a historic employment site, that, uh, notwithstanding the fact that the, the um, scheme did not comply with the development plan, the other material considerations, which included PD rights and also a marketing exercise effectively were other material considerations and they outweighed effectively the conclusion on the development plan. Now I'm going to just say three things in conclusion. Please will people realise what section 38.6 means and you need to look at all the policies, not just the one that is breached. Secondly, that material considerations mean something as shown in this case. And three, can we make sure that that people... Uh, you know, there, there was an argument run on this, which is really quite interesting, which was basically, I do like that the decision was so irrational. I love the, the indication the decision was so irrational that a decision which doesn't add up, new tests in legal parlance, but a decision doesn't add up, which effectively, which has reasoning, which robs the decision of logic. So there we go. You can imagine what Mrs Justice Lang thought about that one. Um, of, of one particular canon case where Natalie Levin tried to defend a reasons challenge, saying the reasons were so bonkers they can't possibly have been the, the Secretary of State's real reasons, um, and, and with her persuasiveness managed to succeed. Um, now we're going to do champion and nudge of the week before the interview, given that we think we go to our pre-recording. So Mary, you're going to tell us who the champion of the week is. So my champion was going to be the authors of Coming Home, which you're about to hear about in any minute now. But then I discovered this afternoon that PINs issued some new guidance and I was getting so excited because I thought, oh my goodness, this is it. We're back to normal life on inquiries and site visits and all the rest of it and hearings and we can, we can be in the same room with each other. Uh, uh, but sadly, no, that was a false hope. And it's the same as ever. So um, my champion is still the authors of Coming Home. And I'm doing nudge, um, and I think we've nominated two nudges. So firstly, um, but this was your idea, Mary, I've got any of credit to um, We need to nudge the government to sort out the continuation of, of uh, virtual or remote meetings following the 6th of May, because the legislation which was set up in the first lockdown has a sunset door, so it sort of falls away. Um, and they do need to get on and really ought to be permanent, in my view. Um, um, the, the, the ability to do it, whether or not it's actually done, is another question. And then secondly... Um, I think possibly Chris Young's uh, favourite human being other than immediate family um, is Jackie Weaver right now. Uh, and uh, we have to give a shout, <laughs> shout out to her and nudge those who opposed her and indeed continue to oppose her in, in hand forth. Um, yes, now, sorry, Ch Charlie, you have no authority here. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Just call me Brittany. Um, <laughs> now, um, I better say, because in case I don't, it doesn't come back to me at the end, next week we have got um, uh, Gorgeous George. Um, George Clark, who wasn't able to join us um, through illness a little while ago, is, is going to join us, the architect from the TV. We're really hugely looking forward to our discussion with him um, next week. So please do join us for that. And now, um, if uh, the tech works, um, you're going to see us from yesterday with the Archbishop. Enjoy. It is with incredible pleasure that we welcome to Have We Got Planning News For You, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. Thank you so much for this incredible opportunity to speak to you about Coming Home. The Church of England's report on tackling the housing crisis launched this week. It was commissioned in 2019 by yourself and the Archbishop of York. The Commission is independent of the Church of England's institutions with complete freedom to say whatever it thinks and believes is necessary. And this report is certainly that. It is an extraordinary piece of work put together by the commissioners, led by Charlie Arbuthnot, who was the former funding advisor to housing associations. It takes, frankly and honestly, the housing issue, the housing crisis by the horns and addresses the poverty in our society, a major 
issues, difficult issues like land ownership, which, of course, is directly relevant to the church. Now, before I turn to the questions, I have two quick thank yous to make. The first is to your excellent team at Lambeth Palace, who have been so helpful. And that includes Chris Cox, F.B. Martin and Julianne Broden-Noble. The second is to the man who made this all possible. Martin Kingston is someone who everybody watching will know, but uh, Justin may not. Um, he was Martin was for much of his career one of the most preeminent planning silks in the country, a very committed Christian and someone who in retirement is working just as hard now for the church. Without further ado, I'm going to move to the first question. Um, and my question is simply to ask, what led you to set up the commission? Thank you very much. And thank you to uh, uh, you all for inviting me to do this. Um, one of the things about the Church of England is we've got more branches than uh, any other institution in England. Uh, I think uh, Nat West and people like that have about two and a half thousand, uh, three thousand, or Tesco. Uh, and we have 19,000 or 15,000, somewhere around there, uh, most of which were built more than 700 years ago, fair enough, but they're there. We're in every community. And I was a vicar for 10 years, and one of the characteristics of being um, in a local parish, just as the local vicar, is uh, that you see the problems. And the biggest problem that those on, uh, certainly in the urban areas, the kind of places I've worked some of my time, and the outer estates brought forward was the issue of availability and affordability of housing. And, and I was writing a book about three years ago, it's a very boring book, um, called Reimagining Britain. And uh, uh, one of the bits of, when I was writing on housing in that, uh, one of the things that came across was that we needed to talk more about communities and less about housing. And after it had gone out in order to try and redeem the boredom of it, they, uh, Someone suggested we did a commission on housing to try and pick up what our people around the country were saying, and they did. We have land. We have to think hard how to use it well. We really care about people. Um, we deal with the fallout. We see the injustice. And um, at the heart of the Bible and of Christian teaching are great images of coming home. I mean, one of the best-known stories of the prodigal son. You know, when he's the, the, the younger brother's gone away, he's far away, he's in a time of famine, and he says, what am I doing here? I'm going to go home to my father. The idea of home has a resonance at the depth of who we are and what we are. So all those things came together. Can I ask, Justin, can I ask the question about how, how do we get, in the light of your report, how do we get the government to take the provision of housing, and particularly those who need assistance, how can we get them to take it seriously? Well, I think it, the report is very clear about the nature of the crisis, which you would know, I'm sure, with your jobs better than I do. Um, Eight million people in substandard homes, more children in substandard housing now than there were when Ken Loach wrote, um, produced Kathy Come Home in the mid-60s, which had a dramatic impact. Uh, three and a half, uh, uh, three and a half, three million houses built over the last 20, 25 years, and two and a half million people more renting than used to. Um, and you could go on and on that, it is a huge number of people who spend more than a third of their income on housing. It is going to be, it's not the government doesn't take it seriously, but I think we have a series of opportunities and crises um, at this moment in our country. Um, the pandemic stripped the wallpaper and showed us the cracks in the plasterwork. Uh, we've got a generation of children 
at school who've, who've had their education severely disrupted, and that's on the news in a big way today. We've got the economy having fallen more last year than any year since 1708. We've got um, uh, the health service where, I mean, I go in to a to St. Thomas's Hospital as a volunteer assistant chaplain, and the biggest thing you see is the exhaustion level of the staff is beyond anything you can imagine. They look, at the end of a shift, they look like troops coming out of the trenches in the Great War, just absolutely ashen with tiredness and, and the stress of the last 12 months. And we've seen this incredible injustice in the way the pandemic, the virus has, has killed people. And a lot of that links to housing. Multi-generational, overcrowded, substandard housing. There are many other reasons. This crisis goes back 40 years. Uh, it's not, I'm not blaming this particular government. When we look at that, I think we have a portfolio of needs that we can bring out really powerfully to government and to landowners and to property owners and to the church and to developers and to people like yourselves, where we can have a collective view that says this has got to change. It's a solvable problem. And moreover, it's a solvable problem, which is good for the economy. When you want to get an economy going, you build houses. You know, it gives you basic jobs. You've got apprenticeships. You buy carpets, you get white goods, all the, all the, all the stuff. So this is a win-win to get the economy going, train the people who've lost out, uh, get us some really skilled, newly trained uh, young workers at the beginning of their careers, and uh, at the same time, transform our society and above all our communities. Apart from that, it's all downside. Can I just ask, Justin, I, I, I'm struck by a number of points in the report, but one of which is that this is the church putting its, its money where its mouth is, or rather its land where its mouth is, which is really quite, quite uh, startling. Um, to, to what extent is this deliverable with or without government assistance, or is this deliverable in terms of the church's aspirations? Do you need government buying for this? That's a very, very good question, uh, Paul. Um, it's, I, the implication of your question is that um, it makes change to see the church putting its land uh, where its mouth is rather than its foot where its mouth is. I think. <laughs> that was the implication. <laughs> Um, I think you're right. It's a big challenge. I, um, the church can certainly do this and ought to do this. In one sense, uh, the Archbishop of York, in, a, in something we did this morning, ended quite rightly with uh, Stephen Gottrell, with something we've been saying to each other, is what this very independent and challenging report does is to say to us, where is the church's soul? You know, sorry to keep mentioning religion, but it, it's kind of my job like yours is law. And um, uh, there's one of the parables, uh, 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 or there's one of the things Jesus said is, uh, your heart will be where your treasure is. And if your treasure is in heaven, your heart will be in heaven. If your treasure is in the bank, your heart will be with your money. And the church has a lot of land. It's we don't know exactly how much we're mapping it, but the church commissioners alone have just short of 100,000 acres. We're one of the country's biggest landowners. Some of that, 6,000 acres of the church commissioners' land is strategic land with planning potential or actual planning permission. Um, that, the land we have with the diocese, with the parishes, with the trusts and the charities, is enough to be catalytic in changing this, to really catalyze a major change. But it won't lead to permanent impact unless across government, there is a common vision of what housing should be and that government comes in and everyone involved in development and building comes in. So it's got to be wide, very wide. I mean, the, the um, report, 
starts with setting out a theological vision of good housing, but it does it in very accessible ways. And it comes up with five words beginning with S, which you probably see, that housing should be sustainable, environmentally friendly. It should be safe, not just from outsiders, but not like Grenfell, in other words. It should be good quality safety. It should be stable. People should know that they can put their roots down. So many people in rented accommodation move every year. I know from my own childhood how disruptive that is. Um, it should be sociable. It should be have green space and parks, but it should also be big enough that people, your neighbours can drop round for a cuppa. You can, you know, you can put your feet up and, and chat with other people. You build your networks. And it should be satisfying. It should be beautiful. It should be something that you get in, you sit down, you say, I'm home, with all that lovely feeling of being homies. And to do that, there's two other S's, or three, in fact, though they only pick two. There must be a strategy. So we've got to look out 20, 30 years cross-party and say, this is what beautiful housing looks like. This is what we want to have as our housing, things that meet these criteria. And it must have clear metrics for what's going to be achieved over that time so they can work backwards. And to do that will be sacrificial. So that's my sixth S. And it must be strategic. That's my seventh S. But my eighth one is a hopeful one. It, it is solvable. You know, we can do this. This is not, there are some problems people have been tackling for a century and we're not, you know, that will always be with us. This one need not be with us. Thank you. So I think it's exciting. Justin, you've sort of answered a bit of my, my question, because my question was, was to say, was to ask you this really, COVID-19 and Grenfell have both served to illustrate the inequalities in housing. And I was interested in the fact that governments get elected every five years, and yet you have announced this 20-year political programme to improve the quality and affordability of the nation's stock. And so I was interested in why, why 20 years? Is that because, for example, you're trying to transcend party politics, or is it perhaps just a reflection of the size of the task? It's both. It must be non-party political. Can anyone... Can any one of you remember what the key point of the National Health Service is? What their vision is? Free, free service. Free. Of, free the point service of delivery. Of, yeah. What's the equivalent for housing? There isn't one. That's the point. Health, housing, education. Those are the three basics. Every time we've had a huge shift in our society, middle of the 19th century after the cholera epidemics, um, after the Second World War with the Attlee government, uh, moments where everything has been shifting, you know, the Industrial Revolution, the end of the wartime period, or the two wars, um, and now with technological change and such huge change in our society and the great crisis of COVID and the change in our outlook around the world with leaving the European Union, Three things have been engaged with by government, housing, education, health. And um, we don't have that vision for housing that you just all could instantly name for health. So that's the first point. We need to know where we're going. Second point, you're quite right. It's got to be cross-party. So 20 years, there will be different parties in office. And third point is that it is such a huge problem. We've got to change the expectations. If you're ever representing a developer, part of presumably what you try and do is negotiate down the um, level of affordable housing that is going to be compulsory. And maybe you're so much nicer than that. <laughs> I must remember if I'm ever developing, which one of you to go to? Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and 
one of the things that is a reasonable thing there is when someone of good ethical basis decides to develop some land they've got, they got planning permission because their great grandfather bought a field a couple of miles from a town, which is now a big town, and suddenly someone wants to build on it. And they're going for planning permission. They have reasonable expectations, and the courts say the reasonable expectations are reasonable. So we've got to change the expectations. You can't do that overnight. It wouldn't be just, it wouldn't be fair, but you can raise the potential level of affordable or social housing steadily over a lengthy period like that. And that's a reasonable thing to do. Mm. I, I completely agree, completely agree. Justin, do you think that there's um, the scope for the Church of England to, to partner with other um, significant denominations of Christianity and, and indeed other significant religions in the UK to, to maximise the effectiveness of, of religious leadership generally in addressing the housing crisis? Uh, I don't just think there's scope for it. I think it's essential, which in some cases, looking at our history, has not always been what we did. I mean, we either sent them to prison or burnt them at the stake. Um, there's, an old, there's an old story about a vicar seeing his bishop after the vicar had been um, in his post in his town parish for a year or so. And the bishop says, so uh, how's it going? He said, it's going very well. Uh, thank you, bishop. And the bishop says, do you ever pray with your other Christian colleagues in other churches? And he says, well, they pray in their ways and I pray in God's. And that's typically been the way that you know, historically we behaved, if one's really honest. Um, so we've, what's happened in the last 25, 30 years is the ecumenism, our partnership with other churches has absolutely changed. I mean, I will routinely go and see the Pope now. Now, when Michael Ramsey went in 1966, it was top of the news. Nowadays, nobody's remotely interested. Praise God for that. I am so pleased because that shows it's, it's routine. So we've got the relationships. Uh, people like the Methodists have quite a lot of land. Uh, many other churches have land. Of course, we'll partner with them. We'll partner with anyone and certainly with other faith leaders. I mean, the chief rabbi and I get on very well. Uh, we, have, we work extremely closely with the other major faith traditions in this country, the Hindus, the, uh, uh, the Sikhs, and the Muslims in particular. If we don't partner, it won't work. You know, what was it Benjamin Franklin said to the 13 colonies in the American Revolution? Um, uh, we must hang together or we will most assuredly hang separately. Mm. Couldn't agree more. Um. Moving on, my, my next question is about the uh, consequences. Where would you like these recommendations to lead to? Obviously, there's a, a plan over 20 years, but more specifically in the short term, it, the, the report is packed full of recommendations. What, what do you think um, in terms of the implementation of those recommendations? What are your ambitions in the, in the sort of next five to 10 years? Um, well, my, there are some really quick wins. What we would love to see is one step, quick step from the government, which is to change the way that uh, the benefit system works to ensure that people are, and to change some rules about tenancy, to ensure that people are more secure in their tenancies. It's less easy to throw them out. Um, uh, that landlords have a proper, not an unjust, but a proper obligation to their tenants, and that the benefits for housing meet the need for housing. And those three things, you could do those in six months easily, government could, and it would make a really big difference. We, at the same time, have already appointed uh, both a, a a senior bishop, the incoming bishop of, Chel of uh, Chelmsford, Bishop Guli Francis, uh, Francis Dakani. She is uh, going to uh, take over from the Bishop of Manchester, leading on housing. He will go on working on it. He's a great expert on housing. 
And there will be bishops around the country who lead on housing and encourage dioceses to make land available. That's two things. We've already started on that. Third thing, uh, um, uh, we're appointing someone who's been working with the Duchy of Cornwall. They've been seconded to us for three years part-time to lead an executive team that will advise on how you can do what the report says you should do, will advise dioceses and parishes and the church generally. Fourthly, we need to change our aims in certain places so that we don't always go for best value when we sell property. And we need to be willing to undertake development ourselves rather than simply selling to a developer. Now, we can do all that very quickly within 12 to 18 months, which given we've had some of this land for over a thousand years is, is quite quick in the context of things. Um, and I would hope in five years that around at least half our dioceses are actively involved in developing land and that there is a significant amount of church commissioners land being used uh, for affordable housing. It doesn't mean getting no return, as you know, it just means sacrificing a bit of return and in building communities and as a result, we've got partnerships with local government and with central government that enable significant amounts of housing to be built on an affordable and community basis. And in 10 years, that that is, has become the habit and expectation across the development uh, and building industry. Justin, I was going to just ask whether um, if you could choose one significant change in the law that could lead to a permanent improvement, what would it, what would it be? Um, and I was wondering whether it, it might be allowing the church commissioners to sell at uh, you know, a threshold below best consideration. Uh, yes, that would probably be the uh, single most important one. I think a change in the law that applied to charities generally to say that social purpose of the charity is a higher priority than best value while remaining prudent and all, all the good things. I mean, you know, we, uh, the church commissioners are an extraordinarily effective ethical investor in equities. They, they in equities, they, they're a small player by global standards. They have about, I don't know, six, seven billion. Um, but they've leveraged that with partnerships so that they are one of the key voices in two partnerships, one of $13 trillion and one of $33 trillion. Now, whoever you go and see, $13 trillion, even Tesla or Amazon, that's a reasonable amount of money. And they're, what they're working on with that is extremely um, strongly with the extractive industries and uh, to improve their performance mining industries, but also increasingly broadly across the equity sector on anti-slavery and all this kind of thing. They're incredibly good at it. A guy called Adam Matthews leads on it, just superb. And we just need to be able to do the same on land, just to be, to put the social purpose right up front. And in that way, we keep our soul and we also have a very reasonable return. Can I, can I just ask, Justin, one of the things that we notice, obviously, in all our housing inquiries is the fundamental problem is often the local population and how they receive housing developments. I mean, without lecturing people too much, but what, how, what's your message to people about how they should perceive change, development, housing schemes? How, how can we change the mindset, which is quite com common that people see these kind of developments as a threat? That's the kind of default position. That, first of all, we have to listen to communities. Um, you can't just go in there and tell people and do things to people. You've got to do it with them. I mean, that's how we've worked forever, uh, since long before this was a country. And um, I think, therefore, 
and you want anyone can understand people's anxiety about this sort of thing. I, I was vicar in a rural town, small rural town in near Warwickshire, where until uh, well, I went into the parish in 1995. Until the 1980s, the population was about three or four thousand. Uh, then there was a big road running around the side of it. They built, people started building the other side of the road. When I arrived, it was about 8,000. Now, that has an enormous effect on a community. That really, you understand why people are anxious about that. Uh, schools. So one of the ways you've got to do it is you've got to ensure that when you're doing a development, that the social structure of, of the place is cared for. If you're not going to need another school, you have another school. Surgeries, um, shopping, you know, all the things that you don't simply overwhelm the local side. Secondly, the long-term interest of these communities is that development that is beautiful, the five S's, goes ahead. Because affordable development means young families. If there's a school in your town and your village, it means the school will get new kids coming in. It means um, uh, new life. It means the community will keep going. You know, your shops will stay open. Your, your post office will stay open. Um, the economy will continue to function. Um, and uh, we saw that when I was in, in that place. I mean, it, it, as, you, as we managed to draw the community in from both sides of the bypass, as they said, um, you know, we saw a lot more people coming to the church, for example, um, and uh, we saw growth in all kinds of ways. And the pubs were open, nine pubs, um, not that I was counting, of course. And, um, um, you know, it's, it's a really young, affordable housing means healthy communities. Uh, Justin, my, my next question is really on a similar theme to, to Sasha's and again, born out of experience of um, housing schemes very often being delayed or, or stopped because of local politics, which, which in turn is tends to be driven by local objections, often led by parish councils, so, very often out of the best of intentions, but due to fears, etc., along the lines you described. And I was struck by chapter seven of the report, which, um, uh, as you know, uh, sets out um, recommendations for individuals to take a, a more selfless, indeed more, more Christian uh, approach to new housing proposals, to think about what it means for those who may benefit from them. Um, and I just wondered, uh, recognising that it's not the church's role to sort of instruct or tell people, <laughs> force people to, to um, do certain things. But is there anything more proactive that the church can do, particularly in relation to leveraging the, the network, that you, this incredible network that you have, reaching the parts that others can't reach, to try and persuade, for example, those involved in the leadership of Paris councils just to, to think about um, uh, the other side of the coin? Well, I think from my own experience and from what I see right across the diocese, which I serve, which is Canterbury Diocese, obviously, um, local clergy are doing that very well by example and by persuasion, uh, by personality, and also, surprising that it may seem, uh, quite often by sort of sermons and, and teaching. You know, the Good Samaritan, that's uh, the command to love your neighbor as yourself. These are fundamentals which resonate even with those of no faith. I mean, the, it, it's, they go very deeply in our society. And I think that, you know, we've had the last year has been a year of grief and lament for unspeakable numbers of people. But there have been some extraordinary golden strands that have wound through the darkness. And one of them is the way communities have come together and realise what it means to care for your neighbour. Um, I mean, my, I, I talked to my mother last week that, that uh, she's in her early 90s, she's on her own, 
And um, she says, you know, the people around, she's lived there for where she lives for half a century. The people, it's in central London, the people around the square, they all know her. You know, the when she goes out, everyone greets her. People come and knock on the door and say, can I walk the dog? They Someone checks on her a couple of times a day, apart from her carer. And um, those are things that just didn't used to happen. And it's just a fairly typical thing. So I think the point, the thing I like about these five values is that they resonate. And they're not only theologically very solid, and that's set out in the report, but they resonate with something deep within our society that people say, yeah, that sounds right. That, that, that sounds good to me, even those of no faith at all. They like the sound of that because it goes deep within our culture. Um, Justine, um, it's been a real genuine privilege to, to listen to all those questions relating to planning and the fantastic paper that's been produced by uh, the Church of England this week. But I've got a final question. And obviously, as a final question with five lawyers, I, I can't fail to uh, to take this as an opportunity. Um, when you get a guest, very often you undertake research and you go down rabbit holes. Uh, and the more I read in terms of things you've said, the more uh, I, I hope you, you, you're somewhat of a kindred spirit to some of us on, 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 that will be on the call. Back in 2013, you said, justice of the powerful is not justice at all and judges should decide issues based on truth and the common good rather than class and money. So my question, just a small issue at the very end of our, our conversation is, how important do you perceive the rule of law in general terms is, particularly to those who are at the bottom of society? Well, well, well. Well, actually, I'll, I'll answer it seriously. I mean, it's something um, I remember when I was reading law at Cambridge, uh, HLA Hart, Law, Liberty and Morality, Still get it on my shelf just up yet. I still look at it from time to time. Um, the rule of law, I, I, there are about 80 million Anglicans around the world. Um, the Church of England's about 2% of them. Um, your average Anglican is a woman in sub-Saharan Africa in her 30s on less than $4 a day with a 50-50 chance of being in a place of persecution or conflict. And so I've spent much of the last 20 years uh, in mediation, conflict mediation in places like Nigeria, in South Sudan, Kenya, um, and, and war zones elsewhere in the Middle East, um, with people who are in countries where the rule of law is only the rule of the gun. Uh, I remember on one wonderful occasion in um, Palestine, um, I was stopped at a roadblock and a rather drunk um, guy, uh, soldier, police officer with an AK-47, shoved the barrel at, into my face and um, uh, you know, was asking for all kinds of questions. And my mobile phone went off. This was a long time before I was Archbishop. And I sort of <laughs> smiled politely as one does in the circumstances. And picked it up, said, Do you mind? So I, I said, Hello. And it, uh, at the time, I was uh, living in Warwickshire. And um, uh, this voice said, Oh, um, uh, Mr. Welby, it's Southern Windows. Would it be convenient for us to come and do your windows this afternoon? I said, Well, could I ring you back? I'm just being held at gunpoint in a checkpoint in, in, in the Middle East. Oh, yes, that's quite convenient, sir. <laughs> now, but the point about that is in most of the countries where Anglicans live and where my wife and I go, and she goes and works with women leaders to renew in them their capacity for mediation because you never make peace without the women being involved in these, in these terrible situations. And when you go somewhere where you've as I remember vividly doing with her, we went to a town where there were 3,000 unburied bodies uh, and a militia had swept through it. And I consecrated a mass grave into which the bodies of all the clergy, 
of townspeople were just piled, women, children. And that had been done by a senior member of, that, of the government of that country, by their militia. If the choice is, do we want the rule of law or that, I don't have to think for very long. The opposite of the rule of law is Hobbes. You know, life which is nasty, brutish, and short. And, and at the risk of saying nice things about lawyers, what you do, even when it, when it comes to planning, you look in towns all over the place and you look at some terrible thing where they've leveled a bunch of shops that were the only income source for some really poor people. They never went to a, they never had to ask for planning permission. They just had to get it done. And when you talk about parish councils, I've, in my parish, I used to go to the town council. It's a small town. And the whole thing was, you know, has councillor so-and-so noticed that the third street light down such and such a street is no longer working and one of the paving stones is sticking up? If you don't have that kind of system, you actually find you don't have anything at all. So to me, it is absolutely indispensable. But of course, I will finish by saying it's far too expensive. Very difficult to argue with that. Justin, thank you so much. It's been an absolute privilege. And uh, of all the answers I expected to that question, that's probably the most powerful I could have even dreamed of. Thank you. Thank you very much. We are so grateful to you. I can't say how much. You're absolutely right. Sometimes we do talk down the affordable housing and new developments. But I have to say, amongst all of us, sometimes we talk it up as well. And uh, we try I'm to sure you do. I'm sure we, you do. And we try to deliver more than is required sometimes. Um, but we are so grateful to you, so grateful for this fabulous report. The moral authority of the church will be a voice to be listened to when um, so often this is not listened to. And um, it is a truly exceptional piece of work. Well, that was the show. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, uh, please do consider making a charity donation. And if you want to watch us as well as listen, the show is broadcast live at 5pm on a Thursday. And it's also available afterwards to view on our YouTube channel. Thanks very much to our producer and IT guru, Rob Newbury of Blue Bear IT. Music was provided with the permission of the Ruby Tuesdays. <laughs>